Hi, you're coming into a tip show where I've already been talking for like an hour, so thank you so much for that. Okay, so 80s movies. I'm just going to get on with it because I'm from the 80s, and like, if you're from the 80s and you're a guy, you're supposed to love 80s movies. But I mean this unironically. Hello, it's a tip show. But I mean this unironically. I think Hot Shots is a million times a better movie than Top Gun. Like, I think 80s movies fucking suck. I do. I think they fucking suck. I think Top Gun sucks. I think Lethal Weapon in 2 fucking suck. I think just about every fucking 80s movie that people point to. Commando? Have you seen that piece of shit? Have you seen Commando? Because I saw Commando for the first time in 2017. And there's a reason why everybody in Commando, who or everybody in Hollywood, who shows like a clip of Commando, shows Arnold Schwarzenegger pushing a car onto, from its side onto its uh, onto its front, so he can drive it. I don't even know how to say it. From he he writes a car from its side to the correct driving position. Does everybody know what I mean by that? A car's on its side and he pushes it so that he can drive it. Do you know what I mean? Is that clear? Okay. Every time somebody mentions Commando in like a clip show or something, that's the scene that they show. And do you know why they show that? Because it's the best part of that stupid, worthless fucking movie. That movie is so fucking bad. That the best part of that movie is a clip where Arnold Schwarzenegger pushes it so that he can drive it. That's the That movie is so fucking worthless. Like, almost every single 80s action movie has a mall sequence. Every mall sequence in an 80s movie goes the same. Every police station in the 80s movie looks the same. Every single one. Every single white woman in the 80s looks the same. And it's very strange. What were makeup artists doing? That they all looked that way. I looked at Heather Locklear and I was like, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. No, wait, that's not her. Those two women don't look alike. But they do in the 80s. Because their shoulder pads are literally twice the size of their heads. Because their shoulder pads come out and they are giant inverse triangle people where the shoulder pads come out and then a narrow waist comes in, but everything is structured. And so there's no bodies. There's just these triangle blonde women who just sort of hover around and get in trouble while men shoot a lot of guns and play volleyball shirtless with other men. That's an 80s movie. And they all fucking suck. Every last one of them. There are some exceptions. There are some exceptions. I will be listing them now because people get so mad. There are some exceptions. I will be listing them now. Number one. These are good 80s movies. Number one. Die Hard. Die Hard is a very good movie. Die Hard is an excellent screenplay. And Bruce Willis has been writing it for 35 years now. If Die Hard cast anybody besides Bruce Willis, it would be just as popular. It is such a good script. It is such a good screenplay. 
it is just like the Saw franchise, where somebody wrote a really good screenplay, and they had no idea how good it was, and then a million movies got made off of it. Here's the true story. This is a true story for those of you who don't know. The original casting for John McClane in 1987 had to go. Does anybody know this? The original casting to 1987, John McClane, by contractual obligation, had to go to a geriatric Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Here's why. Here's why. Had to. Contractual obligation. Wasn't a choice. Frank turned it down, obviously. Here's why. John McClane is not an original character. And Frank Sinatra also played John McClane in the 1950s. (laughs) John McClane was a detective in another book before Die Hard was made a screenplay. And Frank Sinatra played John McClane in a detective movie in the 1950s that nobody remembers. So technically speaking, Die Hard was a sequel, and they had to offer it to the original actor, Frank Sinatra, and the Sinatra estate, of course, politely declined. (laughs) But you can't tell me a 78-year-old Sinatra in that fucking Nakatori Plaza wouldn't be fucking dope as shit! Fucking 76-year-old Sinatra! Hey, babies. I may not got no shoes, but I'll tell you what I do got. Ba-bang! Ba-bang! <laughs> other good 80s action or other good 80s movies that I know that I happen to know a lot about okay number two this is an actual good 80s movie it actually still 100% holds up ready back to the future back to the future 100% holds up And not only does it hold up, not only does everybody need to get over about the... Guys, yes, they knew that it was about a guy wanting to fuck his mom and his mom wanting to fuck him. They literally make 40 jokes about it in the movie. You're not clever. That's literally Leah Remini's character and literally all the comedic importance that she brings to the film is that she's a horn dog for her son. You're not clever for pointing it out. It's literally the basic interpretation of the fucking script. Okay, so now that we've gotten that set, sorry, Stranger Things season three, sorry, you're, I'm so sorry, Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson, my, you're absolutely correct. How are the dog, Leah, I, I'm 100%, I said Leah Remini, I meant Leah Thompson, my bad. Leah Thompson. Still want to fuck Leah Thompson and Leah Thompson's daughter, Leah Thompson or Leah Thompson's daughter, Zoe Deutsch, if you're out there, call me. Zoe Deutsch, if you're listening, I know you probably don't want to fuck me, but maybe you would let me fuck your mom? So you should absolutely get in touch with her, because I masturbated to Caroline in the city at least 40 times when it ran. At least. All right. I love masturbating to Caroline in the city. The little cartoons would pop up. I'd take it as a challenge. Okay. 
Time to get my dick out. That's for everybody who's watched the TV show Caroline in the City. For both of you, I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> true story. True story is about Back to the Future. The original screenplay had Marty finish up the dance. He finished up the dance, right? He did his. He did the thing. For, he stole black music from the future and made it his own, like every white musician. And then he ran outside. Hey, I just said like a, I just got I just got the white slam about music in before two different black people. I win. You can't tell that at home when you're listening, but I but I got it in before two black people listening live got it in. <laughs> That's a win. <laughs> so, Marty steals Marty as all good white heroes steals from black people and then he runs outside. And this is true. In the original version of the screenplay, him and Doc then race to a car, jump in the car, and then drive to New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He leaves the high school dance. They drive to New Mexico. We see a distant sand. This is the original, this is the original version of the screenplay. We see a sand dune. And then we see an explosion, and we know that an atomic test has gone off, and then we see the car and the atomic dust cloud, and that's how it hits 88 miles per hour. That's the original screenplay. Kind of a dumb fucking ending. So glad that they changed it. Now, here's the problem. The version that you saw in the movie, okay, ready? The version that you saw that you know is the third version of the screenplay. What did they do in the second one? Well, they got the note that the car wasn't working. And so they changed. This is fucking true. You're not going to believe it. Look it up. They got the note that the DeLorean wasn't working. Because they had to drive to New Mexico. And they said, well, we know how to fix that. <laughs> And they changed the time travel machine to a fucking refrigerator. <laughs> that Marty and Doc just jumped in and out of. This is absolutely true. And the only reason, the only reason, listen to me, I'm not done yet. We're only halfway through. Guys, focus. The only reason Back to the Future doesn't have Michael J. Fox looking at his wristwatch with Doc Brown standing behind him in relief looking shocked over a fucking sideway turned refrigerator. The only reason why that's not the cover of that fucking movie is because, again, some asshole, some suit at the studio went, uh... We're worried that kids might see this movie and lock themselves inside refrigerators and die. And that's the only reason why they changed it! They thought it was a fine idea! Nobody thought it was stupid! Nobody thought it was dumb! <laughs> there was, there's no notes where anybody says, I'm sorry, you want the time travel device to be a fucking refrigerator? Uh-huh. And then you want the refrigerator to not work. Uh-huh. And then you want this music 
to make the refrigerator work. Don't, 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 don't. That's right. You want that music about making your fridge travel through time. That's correct. When can we see your next draft? <laughs> is the refrigerator running, Marty? I've never heard that one. That's fantastic. Marty, is the refrigerator running? It's very good. It's very good. <laughs> I've told this number. You can look it up. You can look that shit up. So I've given you two. I've given you two really good... <laughs> 80s movies that I enjoy that I think hold up and I've given you some trivia. Can I talk about an 80s movie that people celebrate that fucking sucks before we start? That's not an action movie. I watched this a couple of Christmases ago and I thought I was going to enjoy it. I thought, oh, you know what? I'll get drunk. I'll get high. And I'll watch this movie from my childhood for Christmas and it'll be great. Because people are still talking about how it's a good movie. So I do, and I put it on. This is just a couple of years ago. I put on Gremlins. Has anybody as an adult seen Gremlins? As an adult, have you seen it? Because I gotta say, that piece of shit is worthless. Gremlins is the shittiest fucking movie. It's so bad. There's no point to, that's not gross. There's all these adjectives flying around about how it's hilarious. It's gross. It's disturbing. It's none of those things. I swear to fuck. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I watched that movie. I crossed my arms the whole way through. And when the end credits rolled, I just, I, I just thought to myself, I don't even know who the hero of that story was. I don't even know who the hero of that fucking movie is. Because if you say it's Billy, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. If you think the hero of Gremlins is Billy, I think you're wrong. I think the hero of Gremlins is Billy's mom. Let me explain. Let me explain. Just, I'm dead serious. I've watched Gremlins, and I thought, like, who's the hero of that fucking movie? And for a while, I was like, is it Gizmo? It's Gizmo, right? Gizmo's the hero? So a protagonist, a hero in a story, there's couple. There's no, there's no perfect description, right? Just like taxonomy in, in living creatures, mammals give live birth. Okay, but so do sharks. Sharks give live birth. There's only, like, one kind of shark that doesn't give live birth. Sharks give live birth. So mammals give live birth is a rule that you know for mammals, but also it doesn't only apply to live birth, to only mammals, right? So the same kind of thing is true for uh, stories. And who is the protagonist? Who, what, what is a protagonist? What is, a, uh, what is the hero of a story? Well, generally speaking, you know one when you see one but a couple of different ways to describe it is the person who's on the screen the most, is a person that has the most lines, and is the person who does the most in the story or has the most impact on the story. These are different ways to describe a hero. And Billy's certainly 
some of those definitely, he's definitely on the screen the most of all the human characters. He definitely talks the most. But he doesn't get the pet. And almost every movie that somebody gets a magical pet and the pet runs amok, it's that person's choice to get the pet or hide the pet or, or bring the pet in or something. But Billy doesn't do that. His dad finds the pet, and his dad finds the pet at somebody else's place. So he brings the pet in. So he, Billy has no choice if the pet shows up. He gets the rules. He breaks the rules. That causes the problem. Okay. So typically speaking, the person who breaks the rules suffers the consequence in a movie. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything. But Stranger Things season two. If anybody's seen Stranger Things season two, there's a whole right way to do gremlins in the first half of Stranger Things Season 2, one of the characters does all the things I'm talking about. They find the pet. They make the choice. They bring it home. They suffer the consequences for their actions. So Billy doesn't find the pet. Billy doesn't bring it home. Billy does disobey the rules. And then there's a bunch of fucking gremlins in his house. So Billy has to fight them, right? No. No. Because Gremlins is the biggest piece of shit movie of all time. Not only does Billy fucking break the rules on this pet he didn't even invite in his fucking home, okay? And not only do we watch them torture people who have been mean to Billy for like 15 minutes for no reason, straight. But do you know who has to fight the fucking Gremlins inside Billy's house? Inside Billy's house? That Billy made? Do you remember this, people who have seen Gremlins? Do you remember this? Because it shocked me watching it as an adult. Do you remember who kills all the Gremlins in Billy's house that Billy created? You don't, do you? All you fucking Gremlin defenders. Billy's fucking mom. Billy's mom, like a goddamn Terminator, kills four goddamn Gremlins in, like, 45 seconds. She stabs one. She throws one in a blender. She electrocutes one. She burns one up in an oven. She kills four fucking gremlins in a minute. Up until this point, do you know how many gremlins have died? Zero. Zero. And Billy <laughs> Billy spins the whole movie trying to kill one. If fucking Billy's mom just met Stripe, all, all that movie takes is Billy's mom and a fucking slipper in the same room as Stripe, and that movie is 27 minutes long. If Billy's mom has La Chancela and is fighting a fucking leader of the gremlins, she'll win! You know how I know? Because she fucking won empty-handed four-on-one! We watch it happen! She she comes in on a room full of monsters, and she's like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. And then she goes to goddamn town on them like it's Hotline Miami. She goes, guys, it's Christmas. She hears monsters. She opens up. She sees them. And her first instinct is, oh, fuck, no. She grabs a kitchen knife and she stabs one. That's her first instinct to a Christmas house full of monsters. 
And then for the rest of the movie, she acts terrified of them because she's a woman. And then for the rest of the movie, she's like, (laughs) you literally just snapped one's neck. Billy's mom. I just watched you. You just, you literally threw one in the oven and snapped another's neck one handed. The fuck is wrong with you? Guys, Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't kill four people in Commando as effectively as Billy Mom kills those four gremlins in the goddamn kitchen. And uh, I can't stop thinking about it. It's been three years now since I watched Gremlins for Christmas. I legitimately, from the bottom of my heart, as soon as that scene was over, I'm like, I don't want to watch the rest of this fucking movie. Because now I have to go back to watching this person's son deal with these fucking things when I know who the hero of this movie should be. So if that's not upsetting enough, there's a shitty fucking show called Grimm, which I kind of watched for a while, and I really wish I hadn't, and we're not going to get into it because the show is bullshit. It's worthless. I only watched it because one of the creators of uh, a fucking Angel, which was a really good show, Angel's way better than Buffy, deal with it. One of the creators of Angel made Grimm, and I thought, well, you know, it could be pretty good. So Grimm comes right before TV gets good, unfortunately. So Grimm, I think, has 24 episodes the first season. If Grimm had 13 episodes or 10 episodes the first season, it would have been so much a better fucking show. (laughs) Grimm literally starts, like, right before that switchover is made. Like, right before. Like, literally, they got greenlit, and they're like, okay, sign the contract. 25 episodes a season for five seasons, then they sign. And then as soon as they do, like, Netflix pops up right behind them, and they're like, what's this? What the fuck is that? What kind of flicks? Like, literally, like, the timing was that close. So they sign up, they sign the contracts for Grimm where they have to do 25 fucking episodes. So for those of you who don't know, Grimm takes place in a universe... Where apparently all human folklore knowledge about fighting demons is real, but also comes from two guys in Germany in the 1800s in a a singular book. Because nobody thinks any of this shit through. Anyway. Grim. I'm not going to get into it. I'm talking about how shitty it is, not the good parts of it. You don't hear me talking about the werewolf who's fun, do you? No. So we're not getting into it. Grimm's got one good aspect. There's a werewolf. He's very entertaining. He kept me going a whole season. So, in the mythology of Grimm, there's a book. And the book, you read it in German... Yeah, I fucking hate Grimm. You read it in German, it teaches you how to fight the monster of the week. Okay? In the whole fucking first season, this guy's like, how did my mom have this book? How did my mom have this book? I gotta become a badass and fight monsters. And like, he has this conversation, often with himself alone in a trailer, with you as the audience. This really good Matt Bomer-looking guy. He'll be like, Oh, I gotta do my Grimm studies so I can become a better Grimmer. So, everybody having a good time? 
grim. Yes, I'm talking about it. And uh, the way that it connects back to everything before we get started with the show is that the whole season, this guy keeps going to a trailer. And he keeps pulling open his book. And he keeps looking at it. And he keeps saying, I need to become a badass. And then, how did my mom find this book? And they do this for 20-some episodes, 40 minutes apiece. The final episode of the finale. The guy is sitting in his fucking house. And he gets attacked by a monster. And the monster's winning. And then a hooded figure breaks into his house, fights the monster and wins, pulls off the hood, and it's Billy's fucking mom! She never stopped. She never stopped beating monster ass. That's what happened to her after Gremlins. Don't you understand? She realized what she was supposed to be doing. She was just a mom in the Midwest. She didn't know she was a monster slayer until that fucking day. Until one Christmas where she walked into a kitchen, saw four demonic entities and a kitchen knife, and she said, Oh! Oh! And then she just, she's like a Vera Wang. Vera Wang wasn't Vera Wang until she was 42. Vera Wang sewed her first dress at 40. She's like the Vera Wang of monster hunting. She's the Tim Gunn of killing gremlins. In all seriousness, if you pull up screen caps of the mom from Grimm, I've only seen her in that one scene, so I don't know what she looks like in season two. But if you pull up screen caps of the mom from Grimm at the end of season one, right? And then you pull up, uh, you pull up, uh, Billy's mom from Gremlins. They are both white women about the same height with curly black hair and dark eyes and about the same complexion. So there's actually, they actually do kind of look alike. And it was a lot of fun for me because I fucking hated Grimm, but then Gremlins kind of made it worthwhile. Okay. All right. Because I was watching Gremlins and then I watched Billy's mom pick up his chef's knife and go to town. I was like, wait, what? Because I remember her trapping as a kid, just real quick, as a kid, I remembered Billy's mom trapping a gremlin in a blender, but I didn't see it as heroic as a kid, right? Because, I mean, like, I grew up with, like, Batman and shit. How are you supposed to see Billy's mom as a hero versus Michael Keaton not being able to turn his head? Do you remember when Batman, when he wanted to look at you and he was facing the other direction, he had to do a 180? He literally had to plant his feet and turn his shoulders to look at you. Couldn't even move his fucking neck. It's the ultimate killing machine, but he literally couldn't duck, swerve, look left or right. (sighs) 
he can kind of move his net in the dark, uh, the, the Dark Knight era. He can move his neck a little bit. When can he start moving his neck? When can Batman start moving his full fucking head? I don't want to start the show. You guys are in a mood today. You got me in a mood too. I just want to talk about gremlins. Have you guys pay me? All right. <clears throat> so I should talk about... Thank you. You guys are very sweet. I should talk about where I'm at and what's going on with me. Um, this is hard to admit. This is difficult for me to say. And that is my therapist kind of leveled me out about 10 days ago, kind of, kind of put me on my back heel. And I've been, I've been dealing with it since. And basically, <clears throat> what my therapist said was a huge compliment, and it still kind of collapsed me. What they said was, is that I was doing amazing for me. But doing amazing for me doesn't mean I'm doing even halfway good for anyone else. Now, this wasn't a judgment about me as a person. This wasn't a judgment about everything I'm doing or all that I offer. This was only a, a judgment about an aspect of me. But see, I thought I was nailing something. And I was. For me. But I was also raised in a pretty strange environment. And so here on Earth... Uh, I may actually still be uh, slacking off a little bit. So <clears throat> I've had a lot of trouble with that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, luckily, I didn't backslide or anything. That's the, that's the thing that typically happens when I, when I feel something like that, when I feel an obstacle like that. But that's what's been going on with me for the last... 10 days. I haven't been able to get it out of my head like if my ears were too close to a giant bell and it was suddenly struck very loudly. That same kind of loud resonance just keeps ringing through me. Every time I think I'm doing good at something, it immediately is recalled. I think, oh, you're doing so well for you. You did that so great for you. You really nailed that for you. And obviously I haven't buckled. Obviously it hasn't slowed anything down or stopped production. But it has weighed on me. However... Uh, a couple days ago, I finally kind of came up with a counter. 
And so that's what I wanted to talk about today before we started reading. Because <clears throat> I feel a lot of you have that second voice in your head all the time. I finalized writing this last night streaming. I'm streaming a game pretty recently uh, called Eliza, in which you do therapy, in which you essentially watch therapy get performed poorly. Uh, I thought about making a lot of jokes about like, oh, so this is what it's like from that perspective. But then I realized like that's not really going to serve me uh, and making this funny isn't going to be best. And for somebody who literally tried to make a Belgian genocide joke funny, like legitimately sat down and tried to do that, to say something is not worth uh, making humorous is meaningful. So as somebody who wants to entertain you, allow me to say, I apologize, but uh, I won't be entertaining you for just a little bit longer. <laughs> For some of you, you'd say, well, I've been waiting for years now, so what's a couple of more minutes? Um, <clears throat> when it comes to secondary voices inside someone's head, Western society isn't great as a whole. There are many things that I think should be much more acceptable to talk about, and especially the Anglosphere, that are not. In English-speaking countries, if one hallucinates, they are mad. That's just how it works. But this is nonsense, because everybody hallucinates. Everyone hallucinates, whether they've taken a chemical or not. Everyone has heard something and seen something and interacted with something that was not real. So how can hallucinations be madness if everyone's hallucinated? This is going to get a little bit personal, and you're not going to agree with everything I say. That's fine. Dreams are hallucinations. Just because they happen on a cycle, just because they happen when you can determine them, that doesn't mean that they're not hallucinations. The ability to have a dream means that you have all the cognitive equipment necessary to hallucinate. The ability to have cognition means that you have that. Hallucinations are a side effect of cognition. And yet, in the Anglosphere, it only is an interpretation of madness. You see, what is and what is determined of your experience are two different things. In the Anglosphere, as the president of the United States, I could say, I had a dream last night. And I can describe a very funny dream. And nobody will whisper for my impeachment, at least if we're of the same party. I have to throw some jokes in. But if I were to say that I was stone cold awake and I had a vivid experience or recollection or something was evoked to my mind, 
that was not experienced by anybody else. Oh, the whispers would begin flying immediately, if not for the outright calls. Oh, but dreaming and waking are two different things. Well, if you train your mind that they're two different things, then they're two different things. But I have the same brain when I go to sleep as when I wake up. And I think the rest of you are a little bit silly that you think you have a dream self and a waking self. But again, you don't have to agree with everything that I'm saying. I bring all this up to talk about a story, as I so often do, to bring in pop culture. But today I don't have a movie. I don't have a TV show. Today I have a story that none of you have read. It's about a dragon slayer. It's about a dragon slayer in a community of dragon slayers. Back before people trained dragons and they killed them in stories. I'm not going to go over the whole story, but I am going to go over the fact that there is a tiny little village and it's isolated and it's in the middle of nowhere. And there are dragons in the forest and the mountains and the valleys all around. And so all the young men in this village are trained to be dragon hunters, dragon slayers, out of necessity. This young man approaching the age of dragon slaying is nervous. He's big and he's broad and he's capable. The dragons are deadly and he knows it. And unlike all of his peers, who are so excited to go off and hunt dragons, he is terrified. And he alone, because of this, goes to a hermit and asks him for a benediction. He asks him for some kind of protection from the hermit. And the hermit gives him exactly what he's asking for. He gives him a charm, a drake kind of, uh, a drake kind of Think talon, think finger, a necklace that he can hang around his neck, a pendant, and an incantation. Wear the dragon talon, wear the dragon finger. Say the magic words. Remember your training, and you'll be victorious. Kid goes into the forest the next day. Here's the dragon. Dragon charges him. He is full of sweat. He is full of fear. He clutches his pendant. He clutches his axe. He says the magic words. He chops off the dragon's head. In this story, you bring dragon heads back with you because there are so many dragons around. That's how the village survives. That's how everybody keeps on villaging along. So the kid brings the dragon head back. And a lot of his peers, a lot of his cohorts, don't make it back, but a lot of them do with dragon heads. And they all mount them, because, of course, they have hunted dragons. Next season, they go out. Kid comes back. Less of his friends come back. New crop of kids, of course. Half of them come back. So on and so forth it goes. You hunt dragons several times a year in this village, and so it skips ahead, the story, to a point where the kid has 49 mounted dragon's heads and keeps his pendant well under his shirt, under his tunic, so nobody knows his secret. And he's essentially the only dragon hunter of the village now because mothers, 
tired of sending their babies out into the forest, and half of them are going to get killed anyway. We have such a great dragon slayer. Dragon Slayer is getting ready for the next season. He, of course, loves his occupation very much, and he's so very good at it. And he finds out that the hermit is dying. He goes to the dying hermit, the person who gave him his status in this village as the now sole professional dragon hunter. And he asks him about the pendant, about the incantation. And the hermit, smiling as he dies, says that he made it up. Dragons don't have fingers. They have talons. It's a mummified hand. And the words, just words. The dragon hunter goes out, and he goes to fight his 50th dragon, knowing this now. He grips his hands. He grabs his pendant. And the story ends with a group of young boys being taught how to fight dragons because there's no dragon hunter in the village, but there's plenty of dragons around, you see. You can take from the story whatever you want. It's a story. That's why they tell them that way. But the interpretation is pretty clear for me. It was the thinking it was the not thinking that allowed him to be successful. It was the belief that he could that allowed him to do it. And when he questioned that belief, his ability faded with him. Well, that's a very long walk, I know and a very abridged folklore, I know. But <clears throat> consciousness, canniness, belief in yourself, cognition, the ability to, to focus, the ability to gain perspective, see something for what it is, to enact yourself in it, to become better, to see clearly, to have true perspective on not only the situation, but your place in it and your actions. It's very difficult. It's very frustrating when you have it and then lose it. The last thing I'm going to leave you with before we get involved with these stories is the simple truth that a lot of researchers in, in the cognitive field, in learning, simply didn't want to admit, thought that they were getting wrong, and now are just outright saying. We don't know if this is going to stay the current thinking, but this is the current thinking, and that is learning is supposed to feel uncomfortable. Your brain and your body are supposed to tell you that something feels a little bit off. When you are optimally taking in information, that information feels a little bit disorienting. For a long time, experts were thinking, well, if you just teach people right, they won't feel anxious, they won't feel doubt, they won't feel shame 
when they're learning? And the answer is probably, uh, they're probably going to feel one of those three at least. At least. There's probably a built-in system to the human consciousness that's the equivalent of, are you sure you wish to delete this file? Because everything we learn does take precedence over things that we learned before. It's biologically how it works. What you learn today, you tell your brain is more important than what you previously learned. So there's supposed to be some discomfort. How you experience that is, of course, the next step. Because, like, we experience discomfort taking out trash, but we all do it. Hopefully. Hopefully. Are any of you hoarders? Are any of you hoarding? Don't admit it now. Don't say it now. Just look around at the trash and start making a plan. So discomfort doesn't have to be that big of a deal. <clears throat> Long walk, heavy talk. I know. And we're just about to get started with the poetry. I promise. I promise. I promise. <clears throat> so, I wrote all that down, and I put it all together to say that a lot of you probably at the beginning of this, when I said... My shrink said, you're doing great for you. And then I started hearing that for you in my own head when I was telling myself other stuff. A lot of you probably thought, well, that was bad, or that was wrong, or that was rough. And I appreciate you very much. But I'm willing to bet that you don't do the same for you. I'm willing to bet that you say much meaner things than for you in your head to you and that you don't get nearly as defensive as you did for me. Because for you is not a bad thing to say. I'm really proud of my for you. Listen to me. I worked real hard to get to for you. I paid a lot of money. I went to a lot of different therapists. I worked really hard to get it to for you. So celebrate it with me. Because learning is supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to bring you over the next hill. You're supposed to look back on yourself and see yourself as naive and incomplete and awaiting instructions that you have now. You're supposed to always look back and say, oh, if I only knew then. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, why do we even get out of bed? So, I appreciate you all very much. However, for you, Baning myself, as I've taken to calling it, right? For you. Is a victory lap. <laughs> it's a win. Celebrate me. And then turn it inward. 
because I used to say truly cruel and awful things to myself all day, every day. Some of you are there now, but you don't have to. It's going to be uncomfortable because you're going to be learning something new. So you're going to have two voices in your head for a while there. You're going to have the voice in your head saying that you're dumb. And then you're going to say, now stop talking, which is learning. And then you're going to have a new voice in your head saying, well, that's dumb. And now you get to fight both of them at once. You lucky, lucky creature. And I mean that. Hey, I'm talking to you. Now you get to fight two voices in your head that call you the enemy. And you're lucky to do so. Because to do so means that you're alive, means that you're aware, and means that you're learning. So do it. Because you're lucky to fight that fight. All of you. If you envy that I went to a shrink and he cut me in half, and this is what's on the other side of that, that's okay. It's okay to laugh at it, too. It's okay to not see this as strength at all. That's fine. But if you do see it as strength, don't envy it for too long. I'm telling you to follow me up the fucking path. I'm telling you that someone told me to climb up it. And for many years, I said, don't climb up it. It's a long, dumb path. But now I'm high enough on it that I'm going to turn around and say, Hey, get your asses up the path. In the hope that one day you do it too. So. And, and trying to tighten up the summation as much as I can. Die Hard's a really good movie because of the screenplay, and Back to the Future's a really good movie because you like the characters. And basically what I'm trying to tell you is, is that it doesn't really matter which 80s movie that you like the most. And also that self-improvement is very, very rough, and that at any given time, hey, hey, that was the joke, here's the serious, here's the medicine. At any given time, you're fighting multiple opponents. What do you think when you watch somebody on a screen fight multiple opponents? What do you feel when they do it? Get your head in the game. Okay, <clears throat> let's start reading. <clears throat> they are rattling breakfast plates in basement kitchens. And along the trampled edges of the street, I am aware of the damp souls of housemaids sprouting despondently at area gates. The brown waves of fog toss up to me, twisted faces from the bottom of the street, and 
tear from a passerby with muddy skirts, an aimless smile that hovers in the air and vanishes along the level of the roofs. Morning at the Windows T.S. Eliot <clears throat> Beautiful dreamer, wake unto me. Starlight and dewdrops are waiting for me. Sounds of the rude world heard in the day, lulled by the moonlight, have all passed away. Beautiful dreamer, queen of my song, list while I woo thee with soft melody. Gone are the cares of life's busy throng, beautiful dreamer, awake unto me. Beautiful dreamer, out on the sea. Mermaids are chanting a wild lorelei. Over the streamlet vapors are born, waiting to fade at the bright coming morn. Beautiful dreamer, beam on my heart. Even as the morn on the streamlet and sea, then will all clouds of sorrow depart. Beautiful dreamer, awake unto me. Beautiful Dreamer by Stephen Foster. <sighs> I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm feeling kind of emotional, so here we go. <clears throat> Met the ghost of Stephen Foster. No, I can't do it. <clears throat> Met the ghost of Stephen Foster at the Hotel Paradise. This is what I told him as I gazed into his eyes. Rooms were made for carpets. Towers made for spires. Ships were made from cannonades to fire down inside her. Anyone know that one? Anyone know it? Hello, Emily. Go run all night, go run all day. Anyone know it? Countdown ladies never sing all oh, the doo day. No, no, no. I can't sing it. I can't sing it. I'm too emotional. I got a little flint in my throat, too. <laughs> Met the ghost of Faison Hoster. Met the ghost of Stephen Foster at the Hotel Paradise. This is what I told him as I gazed into his eyes. Anyone? Nobody? It's <sighs> such a fun song. Ships were made for sinking, whiskey made for drinking. If we were made of cellophane, we'd all get stinking drunk quite faster. <laughs> no? All right. Squirrel nut zippers. Anybody know them? Really? Anybody? Squirrel nut zippers? In the afterlife, you could be heading for a terrible strife. Now you make these scenes all day. But tomorrow they'll be hell to pay. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't get over it. I was a huge fan of Squirrel Nut Zippers. Uh, I've been a huge fan of Andrew Bird's entire career, basically. Uh, and he was in the Squirrel Nut Zippers. So uh, they had a big song called Damnation, called Hell. 
uh, I think is this is, was the title. It's a crack if you look it up. Squirrel Nut Zippers is the name of the band. They have a, I believe it's Damnation, but they call it Hell. Most people call the song Hell. Uh, it's a very fun uh, song. It's about being in hell. I don't know how else to put it. They were one of those bands in the 90s that pretended they were from the 30s for no good reason. Uh, because there was no internet and there was way more time and TV sucked back then. So, like, yeah, it's a great band. Anyways, I bring it up. I did that whole thing and uh, I'm very embarrassed now that I tried to sing in the middle and did not do it uh, because I did not know who Stephen Foster was. I just know Stephen Foster from that song and I've been singing that song for 25 years or so. And I'm kind of excited that Stephen Foster, I now know that Stephen Foster is a poet. Because I, I knew who his ghost was. I knew what Stephen Foster's ghost said. I knew where Stephen Foster's ghost was. He's at the Hotel Paradise. He's talking about getting drunk. He's kind of a sketchy dude, frankly. All right. <clears throat> to the quiet one, the coy, the wallflower, her dark-circled eyes buried in a book, hard little nipples, Dusty pink beneath a tatty black singlet. Those restless legs sprawled across a squeaky bed. Her secret kept like pressed daisies hidden by pages red. Pressed flowers by Michael Fudar. Fadu, F-A-U-D-E-T. Fadit, could be. When I see an E-T at the end of a name, my inclination is to not pronounce the last consonant. But you never know. No more walks in the wood. The trees have all been cut down, and where once they stood, not even a wagon rut appears along the path Low brush is taking over. No more walks in the wood. In this aftermath of the afternoons in the clover fields where we once made love then wandered home together, where the trees arched above, where we made our own weather when branches were the sky, now they are gone for good. And you for ill, and I am only passerby. We, the trees, and the way back from the fields of play lasted as long as we could. No more walks in the wood. An Old-Fashioned Song by John Hollander What I didn't know before was how horses simply gave birth to another horse. Not a baby by any means, not a creature of liminal spaces, but already a four-legged beast hell-bent on walking, scrambling after the mother. A horse gives way to another horse, and then suddenly there are two horses, just like that. That's how I loved you. You, off the long train from the red bank carrying a coffee as big as your arm, a bag with two computers swinging in it unwieldy at your side, I remember we broke into laughter when we saw each other. What was between us wasn't a fragile thing to be coddled, cooled over. 
it was fully formed, ready to run. What I Didn't Know Before by Ada Limon <clears throat> It could be of silk. Fifty yards or so of the next closest thing to water from the touch, or it could be just as easily a shaft of wood crumpling a man struck between spotter and helm. For now, the rain-making a noisy erasure of this town is the flash that arrives and leaves nearly the same moment. It's what I want to do in this moment, in this doorway, because as much as I'd love to be in the silk shimmer against the curve of anyone's arm, as brutal and impeccable as it be to soar from a crossbow with a whistle and have a man switch off upon my arrival, it is nothing compared to the moment when I eat the dark, draw shadows and quick strokes across the wall, and start a tongue counting down to thunder. That counting that says, I am this far. I am this close. Hum for a bolt. Jamal May. Well, that was lovely. I, I loved it. All right, guys, we've got too much porn, which is a fantastic thing. So thank you to absolutely everybody who submitted porn. I appreciate you very much. We'll see if we can get through it all. We do have a couple of uh, love letters to read first. We'll see. <clears throat> we may even have a piece of nonfiction. I don't read beforehand. I just got kind of like a not-lovey vibe from one of these. So we'll see. Hopefully you enjoy the poetry. This is where you can feel free to tip me. This and at any given moment for the rest of all given time is when you can go ahead and put that money in. If you've been enjoying the live shows and everything that we've been doing, uh, this is how you show it, baby. <clears throat> I will cover you with love next I see you, with caresses, with ecstasy. I want to gorge you with all the joys of the flesh so that you faint and die. I want you to be amazed by me and to confess yourself that you had never even dreamed of such transports. When you are old, I want you to recall those few hours. I want your dry bones to quiver with joy when you think of them. Gustave Flaubert to Louise Colette. Uh, very brief. Maybe I should have ended on that one. <clears throat> Here we go. How happy your last letters have made me, though since Christmas Eve. I should like to call you by all the endearing epithets, and yet I can find no lovelier word than simply the word dear. But there is a particular way of saying it. My dear one, then, I have wept for joy to think that you are mine, and often wonder if I deserve you. 
One would think that no man's heart and brain could stand all the things that are crowded into a day. Where do these thousands of thoughts, wishes, sorrows, joys, and hopes come from? Day in, day out, the procession goes on. But how light-hearted I was yesterday and the day before! There shone out of your letters so noble a spirit, such faith, such a wealth of love. What would I not do for love of you, my own Clara? The knights of old were better off. They could go through fire or slay dragons to win their ladies. But we of today have to content ourselves with more prosaic methods, such as smoking fewer cigars and the like. After all, though, we can love knights or no knights. And so, as ever, only the time change, not men's hearts. You cannot think how your letter has raised and strengthened me. You are splendid, and I have much more reason to be proud of you than you of me. I have made up my mind, though, to read all your wishes in your face, and then you will think, even though you don't say it, that your Robert is really a good sort, that he is entirely yours, and he loves you more than words can say. You shall indeed have cause to think so in the happy future. I still see you, and you looked in your little cap like that last evening. I still hear you call me do. Clara, I heard nothing of what you said, but that you do. Don't you remember? But I see you in many another unforgettable guise. Once you were in a black dress going to the theater with Amelia List. It was during our separation. I know you will not have forgotten. It is vivid with me. Another time you were walking with an umbrella up and you avoided me in desperation, and yet another time, as you were putting on your hat after a concert, our eyes happened to meet, and yours were full of the old, unchanging love. I picture you in all sorts of ways as I have seen you since. I did not look at you much, but you charmed me so immeasurably. Ah, uh, I can never praise you enough for yourself or for you, love of me, which I don't really deserve. Robert Schumann to Clara Goodness, Robert's a bit morose. My dearest friend, should I draw you the picture of my heart, it would be what I hope you would still love, though it contained nothing new. The early possession you obtained there, and the absolute power you have obtained over it, leaves not the smallest space unoccupied. I looked back to the early days of our acquaintance of friendship as the days of love and innocence and with an indescribable pleasure. I have seen nearly a score of years roll over our heads with an affection heightened and improved by time. Nor have the dreary years of absence in the smallest degree effaced from the mind 
of the image of the dear untitled man to whom I gave my heart. Abigail Adams to John Adams It's nice that that fascist had... Man, that fascist had someone that loved him so much. Do you think I'll ever find somebody... Do you think if I ever try and destroy a society, I'll ever have a woman love me that much? That's the dream. That's the dream. Like you're constantly trying to throw reporters who report on you in prison. You're literally passing laws that allow you to do it easier. You're literally trying to create a state bank that you can control. And then you come home and your woman's just all like, You're so sexy. You're so... Yeah, I know a lot about John Adams, all right? You threw a historical figure I happen to know quite a bit about. I'm not just talking about the HBO miniseries, because I've never seen it. All right, you threw one I knew. <laughs> he was he was the original piece. Like whenever somebody's all like Donald Trump is taking America to places it's never been, I know for sure they don't know what the Alien and Sedition Act is. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so terrifying! Don't get me wrong, I read way too much Trump news like every other fucking American who hates him. I do, I do. I just happen to know about Andrew Johnson and John Adams, though, and I feel like the Republic will survive. Did you hear the Civil War? This is the worst the Republic's ever... The Civil War? War of 1812? Do you know why we call it the War of 1812 in America? Because if we called it the War of 1812 through 1815 and we kept losing, it wouldn't sound nearly as cool. Because if we called it the War of 1812 through 1815, and by the way, we lost our White House and got invaded 17 different times, it wouldn't sound as great. <laughs> America's never lost a war, including the War of 1812. Didn't we sue for peace at 1815? Shut up. Vietnam doesn't count. Police action. I'm sorry, if you give me a historical figure that I know about, like, if you give me, like, a Catherine the Great thing to read, do you want me to not throw in a horse-fucking joke? I know she didn't do it, but do you not want me, like, you come here for entertainment. Do you not want to hear it? You tell me. Because I know as soon as I said John Adams that a lot of legs closed from the ladies who know their humanities and their historical record. They're like, oh, it's so nice. Now, I got one other thing to say. Before I realized it was John Adams in that letter, because I look at the names last. So my reaction is natural, I promise you. Before I realized that that was Abigail Adams to John Adams, I legitimately thought it was the sweetest thing in the world that she said, my friend. And I thought that was so great. I won that as a spouse. But now that I know it's that fucking fascist asshole, John Adams, I wonder if she just had to keep it official because of what a piece of shit he was. That she was just the Molina of the time. And she just had to be like, this, that's why it was so short and to the point and began with my friend and a humble symbol. She, just perfunctory. Got, gotta keep the fascist fashion.
By the way, for anybody worried for America right now and they don't know the story of John Adams and fascism and they don't want to look it up and they don't want me to say it because I've already delayed this fucking podcast enough. Uh, if you think America's in the darkest times right now, I do believe, whether or not you agree with me, that John Adams was pretty much the definition of a fascist 150 years before fascism existed. And, uh, you know, he's just an autocrat. If you, do, if you want to take it out of those terms, he was an autocrat. And he acted like an autocrat, and he tried to become a little king of America. And then his son was elected. But a few, few years later. Okay? That happened. America elected a guy who was throwing people in prison. Okay? For, for reporting, he passed a law called the Alien and Sedition Act. Feel free to look it up. Alien and Sedition, just like we spelled now. Alien and Sedition Act. So that he could do more of it. And America said, sign me up. Part two, please. With his kid a few years later. And America survived. That's all. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. It's crazy, I know. But times get rough. And people get through them. Toughen up, dragon slayers. I'm going to need you. This fight ain't over. It's a long war. Get your helmets on. Get in the game. All right, here we go. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm about to read here, so let's have fun with it, because I don't know what this is. <sighs> when I was seven, I wanted nothing more than to be beautiful. Not beautiful and smart. Not beautiful and powerful. Just beautiful. A blonde girl woman. I'm reading what's written here. A blonde girl woman with a miniskirt named like Sarah or Jennifer. Instead, I was named Shannon. A name with mouse brown hair and wears the wrong size culettes? I don't know this word. C-U-L-O-T-T-E-S. I don't know what a colette is. Sorry. I took cues on beauty fatality from Vanna White and Miss Piggy. Culotte. Oh, culotte. That's how you say culotte. Thank you. I've heard the word culotte out loud, but I'm, I'm dyslexic. Okay, thank you. Culotte. Wow. Boy, I... Totally close some legs on that one. How did I pronounce it? I didn't pronounce it culotte, that's for sure. Okay. I posed by the refrigerator, like Vanna, and asked if anyone liked to buy a vowel. I batted my eyelashes a lot and slowly and weird giggled, like a fat pig puppet. In junior high, when the other girls made wearing shorts seem easy, I spent half an hour before volleyball practice every day. Curling my hair. Once, I dropped my curling iron on my leg. My thigh read Revlon for a week. All because I wanted curly hair for volleyball practice. (sighs) 
I just, there's a certain point in the story where you know that there's not going to be a payoff. And I think we just crossed it. There's just, there's just no way that this is going to turn into. But it's not much longer, so here we go. On the yearbook day, I wished I had contact lenses. So I swept off my glasses in a moment, wherein I expected the whole world to turn a collective grass and say, Shannon. And they would all whisper with glamorous voices, Shannon, we had no idea you were so physically attractive. We were also unanimously sorry for treating you like a boogermond. We had no idea. You were so beautiful. You looked right. Oh, good. There's more whispers. At age 11, with your growth spurt and your gut hanging out and your stretch pants and your stomach like glasses, without glasses, you look just like a young Murphy Brown, they would say. A young, beautiful Murphy Brown when she isn't wearing glasses. You could sell long-distance plans or sprint, they would say. Oh, good. We got all that, and now we're switching over to the next paragraph. I had read about big doe eyes, so I wind my eyes aggressively. So that the whites of my eyes could be seen all the way around. You would tell that people would get their pets die suddenly in front of them. I would look so beautiful if my eyes looked like that. But smiling. What the fuck am I reading? When the yearbooks were distributed, the pictures were so utterly shocking that everyone laughed until they cried. Other things I did for beauty. I wore deodorant on and in places that did not require it. I tried to camouflage a hole in my black tank top by drawing on the underneath skin in permanent marker. See, that's the first fun story. Once when singing along with pretending to be in the music video for the song Manic Monday, I pretended to curl my hair with a comb, wrapped it up good and tight all the way to the crown. The worst part was the awkward, silent drive to the salon. I dressed as Barbara Bush for an entire day of sixth grade when I misunderstood that the Living Autobiography book report was just that afternoon, and everyone else was dressing up in everyday clothes. I frequently wore the same shirts, pants, and blazers as my teachers. I frequently tried to convince my mom to drop me off of particular girls' birthday parties, in which I was not invited. I safety-pinned my shorts to my underwear so that they would stay tucked in. I hung out with teachers during recess because no one else appreciated the accuracy of my Ross Perot impression. I stopped accepting credit for every book I read. I tried to stop finding jokes so funny so no one could make fun of my laugh. And the thing about it that gets me now is that no one was really watching. All of these major tragedies, the foest of the pause, no one cared. It all seemed so public, so noticeable, so odd and unacceptable. An unwatched tragedy isn't a tragedy at all. Uh, there's no author. Oh, there is an author. I'm so sorry, author. I did not, I thought a fan must have submitted this, but I guess you're a professional author. So here it is. Pretty by Shani Jean Manny. Uh, I am sorry, Shani Manny. And I won't be making fun of your name, Shani Manny. Uh... 
So I'm going to weigh in even though I probably shouldn't because it's very nice to get things to read and I'm very appreciative. Uh... <clears throat> I said the same thing during my Eliza playthrough, uh, which I'm definitely going to be uploading to YouTube because I almost think it's important for people to watch that game in a way. I know how dumb that sounds. Not me playing it, but just watching anybody playing it. I think it's a good game for people to watch someone play uh, or for someone to play themselves. And the reason why I think it is is because the game Eliza keeps coming back to people's perceived problems and the pain that it's causing them. It's a really annoying focus of the game, quite frankly, because it's overdone. But it's also necessary. It's also really good to get in there because it's not a lesson that's given in media a lot. And so uh, just because the lesson at the end of that was nobody was watching and so I should have kept going, I just want to say, ah, uh, that's a bad lesson. Sorry, don't don't mean to don't mean to weigh in on somebody else, but I have to. Bad lesson. Daddy says no. It's a bad lesson to say to anybody of any age. Nobody's watching. No one's paying attention. So you shouldn't care, because unfortunately, sometimes people will be judging you, and they will be judging you right to your fucking dumb face. And I don't always pass it. But the majority of times, even when somebody comes to my server and judges me or comes to my Anon box and they're expecting a public response and I give it to them and they're judging me, I don't give them the benefit of any kind of different reaction than if they weren't in a public space, than if they had come to me one-on-one, -on -one, which is the typical thing to do socially. Um, People are going to challenge you. People are going to remember you. People are going to try and embarrass you. And just super quick, the bully's excuse, quote unquote, is, oh, it's just a joke. You can't take a joke. That's the bully's excuse. When somebody says something like, when somebody says something publicly that's demeaning to you or makes you feel small and you stand up for yourself, the bully's excuse is, you can't take a joke. Not... It was just a joke. That's how people try and get out of trouble. Somebody can say, it's just a joke because they're embarrassed. But if somebody says, you can't take a joke after they just aimed one at you, that's bullying. It's the bully's excuse. They're putting it back on you. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it gaslighting. You can call it aggression. You can call it bullying. It doesn't really matter. You just need to be aware of it. But it does happen. It happens in all social situations, it happens at all ages, and it's not going to stop. And so the idea that it's only <laughs> tragic to be yourself until somebody is a bully is a bad lesson. Because there's no better time to be yourself than when you're being bullied. There's no better time. And to try and make it funny, I'll take it back to Stephen Fry, who is a homosexual British man, who was teased for being a homosexual, because he's an older homosexual Englishman. And he said when he was teased for being a homosexual as a schoolboy, if he said stop or don't, or he was aggressive with them, that didn't work. But if he said, if you continue, you're going to give me a bigger erection than I have now. That did. 
that got the teasing to stop. <laughs> I'm not telling you to do that, especially as women to men, because it's more likely men that are going to be teasing you than women. It's going to be men that are bullying you than women. More likely. They're all women bullies. They're all women-on-women public bullies. It does happen. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But more likely, the person trying to take your voice away from you is a woman as a man. And I'm definitely not going to tell you to tease a man sexually as a bully, because that might just encourage him, because men are dumb. They hear sex, and they respond with sex. Men are dumb. All right? Definitely not giving you that advice. But I am saying if the, if the advice you follow from that author, it, it would be up until somebody bullied you, and you're like, oh, now I'm being witnessed. I had self-empowerment, but now I'm being witnessed. Now I'm being ridiculed. Now I'm being laughed at. So where does it go? And the answer is, in my system, it doesn't go anywhere. You keep it right where it is. You have the same thing, whether or not it's 100 people or one. And that way you never have to remember shit. All right. Okay. Talk a little shit for somebody to come shot distance. That's nice. <laughs> Just real quick, because Ali said that, it reminds me of one of my favorite tweets of all time, which is, babies, what's their fucking deal? And then someone replied to that tweet with, they stare a lot for someone who can't fight. It's one of my favorite fucking responses on Twitter of all goddamn, it's like, it's true though. Babies stare you down, but they're not ready to throw. They'll stare you down, but they won't throw down. What you want, fucking baby? What you want, baby? <laughs> that baby's mad-dogging me since I got in here. Straight staring at me, shoving his hand into his mouth. I can't... Fuck you, baby! <laughs> Babies have their defenses. Babies are not really great at defending against melee, though. For instance, how many times have you heard of a UFC fighter being shaken out <laughs> to a default count? How many times have you heard about an adult being shaken to death on the news? Terrible tragedy today in the South Valley. Two bodies shaken to death. Victim, or the proponent is still at large. One victim was 32 and the other was 27. They were dating. They were walking along together when somebody came and shook them. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm talking about shaking babies to death. I just don't think there's enough laughter. Because I went into that real hard. I leaned into it and everything. It was impromptu. People are talking about baby defenses to fighting, and I'm like, well, you know what they can't defend against? <laughs> it's called the human earthquake! La 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 Also, if you sneak up from behind one real good, you can tap him on the back of the head, and that's it. It's just like the Vulcan death pigs that they don't get up. If you can sneak up behind a baby, you can take him out. That's true. If they don't see it coming... They don't stand a chance. All right, Jez, thank you so much. I'm sorry you have to leave out on, on infanticide before the porn. 
Please tip before you go. Applause, applause, applause. <laughs> Thank you so much. And let's get in. Hey, kitty, do you want to say something real quick? Yeah? Yeah? Do you have anything to say? Yeah? No? Yeah? Can I shake you? Yes? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Kitty says, read the fucking porn. I'm on the red line leaving Porta Square when I receive Ian's text. You're sure you remember the safe word. My stomach is a quarrel of sparrows in a steel-boned cage. I'm starting to regret the corset, a waist-training brocade underbust in white. He's always preferred me in whites, said it made me easier to tell when I was thinking of him. I haven't been back in Boston in years, not since Ian and I split up, but the anticipation I feel, it's like an ache between my thighs. It's instinctive. I can tell he's anxious, too, because this is the third time he's asked about my safe word since I landed. The conductor's voice crackles over the PA system. Next stop, Davis Station. I'm probably making a mistake returning to the house I once called home to the man who taught me how much pleasure my pain was worth. I wasn't a virgin when we met, and I had seen and read enough to know that I wasn't vanilla either. I was butter and sugar waiting to be whipped, waiting to become devil's food, he said, the first time he cuffed me to the St. Andrew's cross in his den. Seems like a lifetime ago. We found each other again on the internet forum dedicated to Japanese rope bondage. Straight away, I recognized his handle and propensity for short, clipped sentences. I was debating whether I should say something when he messaged me. It was only a matter of time before flirtation, nostalgia-laced emails led to sexting at the office. I'm officially in town for a job interview at a publishing house smaller than the one I currently work for, but better aligned with my values. There's the work you do for money to shelter, clothe, and feed yourself, and then there's the work you do to feed your soul. If you're lucky, the one in the same. It's been a while since I felt lucky. The train lurches. I brace my heel against the scuffed floor and inhale, testing to give my lacing ribbons. Over the corset, I have an ivory blouse and a black high-waisted skirt. Clean lines and classic hues, sensible garments from the respectable applicant. I imagine how they'll look strewn across Ian's floor. I bite back a smile. The decision to spend my last night in Boston with Ian was an easy one. I am nothing if not a masochist. For three years, I served at his feet, watching him lay the groundwork that would eventually earn him the unofficial title of Northeastern University Professor of Kink. 
Like a tenure-tracked Rapunzel locked in an ivory tower, Ian only let his hair down under select circumstances, such as the promise of pain or pleasure or the occasion to exhibit his mastery of both. Dating was off the table, but when he offered to let me serve as his live-in submissive, I abandoned my lease, threw my couch into storage, and gladly assumed the position. Even now, ten years later, I still flinch when someone asks if I've read his books or attended his lectures. I have subbed for doms and other doms in the years since I moved out. But in that time, no one has ever fucked me, beat me, or kept me as well or as absolutely as Ian. Nevertheless, I cannot afford to get sentimental. This isn't about picking a scab so much as scratching an itch. It's about indulgence, plain and simple. Once I re-enter Ian's home, I'll be subject to all the old rules and expectations. If I want to turn back, now is the time. I thumb my reply. She remembers. The train slows to a halt. I shoulder my bag, enjoying the slight compression of my clothes give as I make my way to the platform. While exiting the station, I spy a pair of teenagers kissing on a bench like they've forgotten they're in public. My own lips tingle. I cross the street, and I don't stop walking until I reach Ian's house, my old address. He has a three-story Victorian recited from blue to earth and brown. I step up to the porch, and the front door opens before I have a chance to knock. The man in the doorway apprises me soberly. Time has had its way with both of us, but he's still Ian, fair and well-kept, features carving themselves into a look of brutal resolve. Somehow, the wrinkles around his eyes have made him even more attractive. Hello, Allah, he says. I haven't the slightest clue as to his thinking, whether he's glad to see me or plagued with regrets. Hello. My voice is compliant. Sir? He moves to let me pass. Come in. My chest hums like a hive, my limbs made sluggish by veins thick with blood like warm honey. I take a steadying breath and head inside. The walls in the foyer are pastel gray, where they were once gold. Abandoning my boots, I follow Ian upstairs to the living room, where I'm struck by a barrage of familiar sights and aroma. There, his grandmother's old Remington typewriter is on the desk, his floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, the scent of dried eulictus and cowhide. Eucalyptus, I'm sorry. Eucalyptus and cowhide. I lean against the brown suede sofa, overwhelmed. If I squirm hard enough, perhaps I can make out the indents of my knees in the Persian rug. He takes my overnight bag, sets it on the divan, and then offers me his hand, which I accept, letting him steer me into the kitchen. He had the floors stripped and the appliance updated to stainless steel, but... I can still see us in here, cooking together, washing and drying dishes by hand. He bent me over the table with his brandy snifter on my back, trying not to spill, while he languidly fingers my ass. She's blushing, Ian says, his expression equal parts menace and amusement. I touch my cheek, not surprised to find my skin a little clammy. 
Ian comes towards me, bullying my feet until my back is flush against cold steel. I can smell his soap and aftershave, a hint of his sweat. Oh, the nostalgia. My head swims. She looks exactly the same. He says, not true, though if that's how he sees me, I'm not going to argue. He moves closer, breathes me in, then out. Smells the same, too. But I wonder. He smooths a hand down my belly. Does she taste different? My gorilla-fisted heart thrashes as he makes slow, careful work of the buttons on my blouse. I let the garment slip away from my shoulders. The underwire digs at my ribs as he forces my bra cups down. Heat gushes from his mouth with an audible whoosh. Still perfect. He says his thumbs graze my nipples and everything inside me goes taut. I want her eyes on me at all times. Tell me she understands. She does. My words are froth. Ian bends to taste my nipples one and then the other. Pleasure twinges between my legs, sharp and potent. Then, like whiplash, he releases me and strides to the far side of the room to rest against the sink, his gaze apathetic. He feigned indifference in my undoing. At the office, I barely acknowledge praise. But when it comes to serving my dom, I can be made or broken by a single word, or lack thereof. She should be naked, he said. I unfasten my bra, let my skirt and panties drop. Each garment shed a symbol of my surrender. I'm about to unhook the corset when he raises a hand to stop me. He plucks my underwear off the floor, folds them, and tucks them into his pocket, from which he draws a strip of ivory leather, my collar. He's kept it for all these years. I am not prepared for this. She remembers. I fight the tightening around my eyes. Of, of, of course she does. Then she knows what to do. A moment of hesitation, then I lift my hair. It's all so familiar. Ian approaches, his features etched in stone. I envy him his capacity to become impenetrable. He fastens the collar around my neck, and I no longer belong to myself. Ian's mouth claims mine, hard and demanding, like he is against my thigh. A winter green cloud fills my head like helium, but instead of floating up, I delve deep, tunneling into my mystery, into memory itself. I heard the creak of the whip, feel of the sting of the cane, and the pressure of Ian's hands on my hips, his fist around my throat, his tongue breaches my lips to fuck my mouth, and his time-travel kiss fucks with my head. There's a rush of euphoria, followed by the crushing weight of doubt and discontent. I am lost to it, wrenched apart by it, reliving every moment from the very first kiss up to and including our gut-wrenching goodbye. I'm still reeling when he pulls away and stuffs my panties into my mouth. Give me her wrists. He rasps. 
I offer my hands. He extracts a pair of cuffs from the drawer by the stove, which he uses to secure my wrists. Ian kept all sorts of equipment stashed around the house when I lived there, in case he felt like doing blood play in the shower or clamping my nipples during lunch. He pulls a chair out from the kitchen table and motions for me to sit in it. I drop onto the cold wood. He drags another chair out for himself and sits in front of me, blocking my knees. So I can't close them. Where should her hands be? He asks. How could I forget? I clasp them between my breasts, fingers intertwined. <clears throat> Satisfied, he glides his palms up my thigh, then down, then up, a little higher each time. He's baiting me, seeing how long I go before I beg. Once I would have caved in seconds, but time has made me patient, or at least more refined. I plead without words, using my body, my eyes, my breath. Finally, his thumbs reach my labia. I gasp, the sum of my awareness dropping into my lap. He cracks the slightest of smiles when he feels how wet I am, and then slides two fingers inside me. I bite down on my underwear as his thumb trace fingers eights over my clit. I apologize for my impatience, Ian says, teasing my panties from my mouth. I forgot to ask how the interview went. He speaks calmly, like we're old chums catching up over coffee. Technically, we are in his kitchen. I wet my split-chapped lips and try to remember how to form sentences. It went well. I'm pleased to hear that. He fucks me with three fingers now, long, slow thrust, and then slips them into his mouth. Hmm. Still delicious. Ian kisses me again. I taste myself on his tongue. He presses on my clit, and I grind against him. So close to coming, I might as well be gone. Will she take the job? If they offer? He asks. They already have. His fingers stop moving. What did she tell them? I told them I needed to think about it. I expect him to admonish me for bungling my pronouns, but all he does is stare. Has she thought about it? Not really. I lie. Of course I've thought about it. Not only about the job, but what about moving here might mean for us. My clit throbs against his fingertips. Ian scoots back and stands up, unzips his slacks and pulls out his gorgeous cock. He's so erect that the head bounces off the shirt, cupping the nape of my neck. He guides me forward. My lips part automatically as his tip brushes my mouth. I tease him with my lips and my tongue before taking him deep, the skin of my cock tight and blood hot. He tastes like strong brandy, like recklessness, like the past. I suck greedily, wanting him to feel how keenly I've missed him, how luckily I feel to be serving him now. I'm rewarded with a drop of salt. Years ago, I'd have taken shot of Freudian pleasure in the building Ian just to shoot him down. 
Now, instead of using him for sex and then brushing him off, I want him more than anything is to forgive what I've been unable to forget. All the reasons I ultimately left, the anger and resentment, his emotional absenteeism, my own passive aggression. Ian's fingers curl around my collar. If I had the power to forbid her from taking this off again, I would. Do it. Forbid me. Order me to keep it on. Cuff me to your bed and let me stay forever. But I know that cannot happen. He doesn't mean it. It's just a game. Yet the fact that I want to stay yes so badly tells me that I'm not nearly as immune to him as I should be. I should be thinking no. But there isn't enough room in my mouth for both Ian's cock and the word no. Not that no would stop him. Only a safe word could do that. Coming back here was a mistake. I can see that now. Star for air, my chest tightens, entombed within his oversized finger trap. There's no way I can stay here tonight and have the strength leave in the morning, not in this time capsule of a house. As soon as he finishes, which shouldn't be long, I'll make an excuse to go. But to my dismay, instead of coming, he withdraws, still hard, and holds my face with both hands. Charity, he whispers. My whole body is again, is stills. He says it again, charity, love of mankind, money given freely to those in need, goodwill and tenderness towards men. My safe word. He takes a seat in the chair across from me. I rest my hands in his lap. What's wrong? I ask. Ian shifts uncomfortably, covering himself with the hem of his shirt. Look, Alia... I know you've been looking forward to this, and I know we've been talking about playing casually while you're in town. I sit quietly while I can no longer stand the silence. But, but, he rubs his face. If you're thinking about taking that job, Christ, I just didn't think they'd make an offer so soon. I thought we'd have more time. Time for what? For this to see if there's still something here. He scoots his chair closer. I've never seen him so ruffled. It doesn't suit him. Alia, I've missed you. I didn't realize how much until you got here. And I know I've made some terrible mistakes with you back then. I just want to say I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. I'm sorry I paid more attention to the number of views on my TED Talk than I did to whether or not you were listening. Or what you had to say. You supported me. I failed to do the same. For all my talk about being a responsible dominant, I was lousy at it. I shrug one shoulder. Not all the time. No, he says, but often enough. Ian uncuffs my wrists and kisses them. Somehow this gesture feels more intimate than anything we've done since I arrived. I... I think it's clear that you and I have unfinished business. He says, I thought I could handle seeing you casually, but now that you're here, I can tell that won't be possible. And if you take that job, do you not want me to take it? He smooths my hair. 
I want you to do the work that matters to you. If that means staying where you are, I'll be disappointed, but I'll support you in that decision. If that means taking the offer and relocating to Boston, I'll be there on moving day with coffee and the extra set of hams. He clears his throat. But as much as I would enjoy playing with you in the short term, what I can't do is play and being your dog. It would have to be a more permanent position. You're going to ask me to serve you again? My hopes rise like champagne buzzles, bubbles, but I do my best to cork them. To own you would be an honor and a privilege, he says. There's the work we do for money, to shelter, clothe, and feed ourselves. And then there's the work we do to feed our souls. If we're very, very lucky, the two can be one and the same. I kneel at Ian's feet with my hands clasped at my sternum. I would love to honor you, sir. Smiling, he cups my chin, denting my lips with his thumb. And then she has work to do. I kiss and suck his fingers, and then I look into his face for permission to lift his shirt. He nods. I raise the hem, exposing his half-hard cock, which I pepper with kisses until he's fully hard again. I wrap my lips around him and suck, bobbing my head, narrowing my cheeks, taking him deep and pressing my nose to his pubic bone. Ian hands his fist in my hair as he fucks my face, and when he comes, I don't swallow right away, because I know how much he likes to watch the white drip down my chin. Rising on shaky legs, I straddle Ian's lap with the rest of my head on his shoulder. He folds his arms around me and pets my back. I am in love, drunk, melting into the inevitable sweetness that awaits me. No matter how brutal the scene, Ian's aftercare is always twice as tender. Pressing a kiss to my forehead, he cups my mouth to his big warm hands and my entire pelvis throbs. He spreads my lips and teases my clit. I'm desperate to come. Knowing Ian, he's going to make me earn it. Purposefully. Incrementally. Like a promotion. Unfinished business by Rachel Woe. W-O-E, Rachel Woe. <sighs> Guys, speaking of unfinished business... I think we're going to have to leave the rest of the request for later. It's been going for two hours, and I went for like 45 minutes before we started recording. So that's a lot. Plus, I've got uh, a stream show tonight. So if you're listening at home and you're sorry, I'm so sorry. But did you realize it had been two hours? Did you realize that two hours had passed that quickly? This is the perfect time to tip me if you didn't, especially if you're here in person. Because, oh, my God. That means you've been here for two hours and 45 minutes. You didn't know it had been that long, did you? Did you? No. It just keeps going on longer and longer and getting better all the time. So, guys, thank you so much. Throw that money in the bucket. It means the absolute world to me. If you're listening to this at home, there is going to be a link for the tip bucket, or there should damn well be when Ali uploads it. Uh, in the description box, feel free to go ahead and throw money in that show. It would mean the world to me. 
It really does. Thank you very much. Everybody who comes out, everybody who says something, everybody who brings a friend, you keep the tip shows rolling right along. I appreciate it and you. Apologies that this one got a little bit rambly. Uh, for the first time ever, I came to a show a little bit drunk. Not drunk drunk. Not like, not like, uh, not like Ben Affleck drunk. Kind of like, like John Wayne drunk, maybe, when he shows up to a film set. Not like a Nick Cage level, but like, like maybe a Vince Vaughn, like a Vince Vaughn level of drunk when he shows up at a set. So like, I definitely rambled a little bit more than I normally, like an Alfred Hitchcock. That's what I'm at. Like not a Churchill, like a Hitchcock. I'm not like Churchill. I'm not like fucked up. You're not like, is he even going to remember this? But I'm definitely like, oh, you're going to have to repeat the hard things twice. Like a Hitchcock. And a lot of fun. Sorry, it was a little bit rambly. Uh, enjoying the shows. Probably going to do a Saturday show at least once a month or every other month at least. Thank you guys for coming out making them more popular. Appreciate it and you. Tell your friends, come to tit show. To God, ah, come to tip shows. <sighs> come to tip shows. It's tip shows is where I seem to fuck up the most. And say things that I don't want to say at all, because I don't think I want to say the words tip shows, because I don't want to sell myself. Come to tip shows. Come to all my shows. You know you love me more than ever. Come, come, come. You can't help it. Come to all the shows. Come, my babies. Come, come to the next live show. Yes, 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 yes. That way you can remind me to actually do quick quotes and say your name. Come, come to the live show. You won't fall for my bullshit, unlike all the other girls. Come, come to the next live show. I'll see you there. I'll see you soon. And goodbye.